a true optimist is someone who is very keenly aware um, of the roadblocks and the setbacks and the less than ideal situations that guess what we all face, not just in our lives, you know, over time, but every day. It's part of the human existence to experience the full range of human emotion. And we will all have setbacks and roadblocks and these less than ideal situations that happen on a daily level. And so they're keenly aware of it. But the caveat is they see those setbacks and those roadblocks as temporary and something that they have the power and ability to overcome, even if they don't know how or when. They just know that they can. I believe that love is all around us. Love is everything and everywhere. I am love. You are love. We are all love. In our divinity, in our soul, in the truest and simplest form of our being, we are pure, unconditional love. Love is the answer to everything. Every week in this podcast, we're talking to incredible and beautiful people who will be sharing their insights and perspectives to help you find more peace, to help you come from a place of love more often, to help encourage you to be kinder to yourself and others to help you create more happiness in your life, to help you feel more oneness with others, and to help you connect to your higher self. My name is Justin Court. Together, we will help shift the collective consciousness of the planet to be more loving, kind, peaceful, happy, empathetic, understanding, and accepting. This can only be achieved together. It starts with each and every one of us. We are one, and it's time we start acting that way. I am so, so grateful that you're here. I love you, I support you, and I'm here for you. Let's together create more love in this world. Let's do this. Today's guest is the Optimism Doctor. Deepika Chopra. She's also the creator of Things Are Looking Up, a brand that's committed to creating and curating well-made goods rooted in holistic, science-based practices with the mindful intention to increase optimism and happiness. Deepika firmly believes that being optimistic doesn't mean being super happy and positive all the time. I needed to hear that so badly. The two words she equates most with optimism are resiliency and curiosity. She goes in-depth about why she sees optimism in these ways, and I think you'll love it just as much as I do. During the episode, she gives tools you can practice to be more optimistic, daily exercises to bring more joy into your life, And she talks about how acts of kindness can be a very effective tool to help combat depression. Thank you so much for being here and being on the podcast. I cannot wait to learn from you and then share some more of your knowledge with the listeners. But thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to be here. Um, This is very exciting for me and I'm I'm really, really keen on getting to know you better. And I love that 
for those of you out there that will see this, he is wearing an Optimus shirt. So couldn't be more uh, on brand and perfect for me. So I'm happy for that. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I uh, So this, this shirt is actually at the Spread Love Movement online store. Uh, and I wear it a lot, but it's interesting. Sometimes I'm just going to be super transparent. Mm -hmm. I feel sometimes I won't wear it because I, I, I feel like if I'm wearing it on a certain day, I'm like a fraud. Mm. You know what I mean? Like some days if I'm not feeling, yeah. and I would love for your help in this too. Like some days if I'm not feeling my absolute best, you know, if I'm a little down or low about whatever, which is just so natural, yeah. such a part of the human experience. Yeah. It's like, I, I feel weird about wearing it because I feel like I'm not emulating actually what's on my t-shirt. I love that you brought that up um, for so many reasons. First and foremost, I like always share. I am known as the optimism doctor, but I always preface that with like, I am not the most optimistic person um, in the world. I am not like the model of optimism by any means. Um, it's what I research. It's what I'm really good at helping other people increase in. And it's also something I struggle with. And secondly, um, why that, why you bring that up is so important. I think that just right off the bat, I have to just say that, you know, I think optimism is really, really misunderstood. This notion and idea of optimism, you know, oftentimes when I'm in a really large room speaking to an audience of a few thousand, I will ask people, even in that setting, to just shout out the first word that comes to mind when they think of optimism. And of course, um, you know, always the first word or the most popular word or the loudest word or echo is always this idea of positivity. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is really interesting for people and sort of a shock when they hear that someone that is known as the optimism doctor actually thinks of this idea of positivity as maybe like third, fourth, fifth word or idea that comes to mind when I think of the notion of optimism. For me, the two words that come up in my mind that are at the forefront when I think of defining optimism are resiliency and curiosity. And I think that's so important that we actually have to define what optimism is. And so the definition that I work with of optimism or someone that is uh, working on their um, you know, optimism is a true optimist is someone who is very keenly aware um, of the roadblocks and the setbacks and the less than ideal situations that guess what we all face, not just in our lives, you know, over time, but every day. It's part of the human existence to experience the full range of human emotion. And we will all have setbacks and roadblocks and these less than ideal situations that happen on a daily level. And so they're keenly aware of it. But the caveat is they see those setbacks and those roadblocks as temporary and something that they have the power and ability to overcome, even if they don't know how or when. They just know that they can. And so, you know, being someone that is optimistic is not someone that is, you know, walking through a rose garden, you know, barefoot, humming, experiencing bliss, wearing rose-colored glasses, and constantly drinking from a glass half full 24-7. That's actually not what being optimistic is about. Optimistic is so much more about persevering through struggle and having the curiosity 
to be curious and um, interested in whatever authentic emotion you're feeling at the moment. So the next time that you feel like wearing your optimist shirt and you're not feeling that great, you still can because that's part of being optimistic. And we increase our optimism by working our way through struggle and growing and building that resiliency. That's like such a fresh breath of air. (laughs) To hear you as an expert talk about that, because literally in this moment right now, the way I used to look at opt and it literally just changed. The way I used to look at optimism was, yeah, I'm just this positive person all the time. This I'm optimistic always. I'm at that level always. Which but is impossible. Is, I, it is impossible. And it's more, that's more toxic positivity, which I'm sure we'll touch on. But that not only is it impossible, but having that framework or mindset and other people's mindset of that pressurizing us, which I think just over the last decade has really happened. Um, It's very popular and common belief to say things like good vibes only, which by the way, makes me want to vomit. Um, But you know, that's impossible. We don't experience bliss and positive emotions 24 seven, and we can never sort of build ourselves up to that, we will always fail if that's the case, because that's actually the opposite and the antithesis of being a human. Right. And you really just helped me realize that now that my view on optimism isn't, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's right or wrong how I had it before, but after hearing you speak about that, I realize what aligns more to me now. Right. And then, so that is a part of it. And you, thank you again. You just helped me let this sink in that being optimist, like being an optimist is in moments being low and having not so great situations happen. And then being that optimist in that situation, feeling the low, feeling the down, and then working your way back up to a more positive, more loving, more open, accepting uh, place. Exactly. And I think that being someone who is more optimistic or working on that And I say that because I don't actually believe there are true optimists and pessimists. So I'm very careful to say an optimist or or a pessimist. We are all on the continuum of Mm. optimism and pessimism, and we're all more naturally prone to be optimistic in certain aspects of our lives, and we're challenged in other aspects of our lives. So it's not just this like blanket sort of, you're an optimist or you're a pessimist. You might be more optimistic on certain, you know, on larger scale, global ideas and a little more pessimistic on very personal um, issues or vice versa. And so for me, you know, just being vulnerable, my sort of Achilles heel in optimism, pessimism is health. And so I feel like I'm naturally very prone to be optimistic about many, many different aspects of my life. But when it comes to health, um, I am very pessimistic. And I like my, my MO is sort of just to be like, whatever it is, I have it. And I, that's something I really have, I work on. It's where, where my like main core and work lie. So you can imagine how hard the pandemic was <laughs> for all of us, but for me, um, uh, personally and as a professional, but I think it's important that this idea of, and I really like discussing this idea of, and as an optimist. So again, not optimistic, not pessimistic, we're both, but also this idea that being optimistic is actually Being able to sit rooted in your authentic feeling, which often does not feel good, and not pushing that under the blanket, really sitting in it and 
and validating it and owning it. But at the very same time, even if you haven't solved it and you don't know how, you leave this like open door for the idea of hope, or you leave this open door and curiosity of how this will change because you have lived through your hardest days thus far. So why wouldn't it be true that you would now too? Even if you don't know how to get there, but just this little tiny window that you kind of crack open for hope. That's optimism. Mm. I love that. Just that little window of hope can expand yeah. and become everything for you. Do you think, I love the idea of end too. I'm a huge advocate of just end in, in everything. It's never or, it's always end. Do you yes. think it's important too to not place ourselves? Because I don't, uh, I'm not a big fan of placing ourselves, myself in a box or a label. You know yeah. what I mean? Because when you do that, you think that's who you are. It kind of shuts you off to other things. And then if you're not acting that way, your whole identity crumbles. So do you think it's important to not place ourselves in that box, either as an optimist or a pessimist, and really just understand that we are both of those things at any given moment? Yeah. So I, I definitely think that's true for the optimism, pessimism piece, and a lot of different things that we label ourselves with. But you know, as humans and in human nature, there is, there is a benefit to labels and to language. And even though we don't want to get too bogged down on those, it's sort of, if we had none at all or any way to describe our feelings or whatever those were and put words to something, um, it would be a very confusing, um, it would almost be too fluid. Um, mm -hmm. I think that the piece here is that knowing that everything is temporary. So being able to talk about something or who you think part of your identity might be, and you could post certain labels for yourself and that's how you connect with others by describing something, but at the very same time, always trying to know, and it's hard, it's hard work, but it's like a muscle knowing that whatever it is that you're feeling or going through, or even labeling yourself as can and probably will change. And so there's not this permanence to it. It might be true for you today, but it may not be true for you tomorrow. And so just if you feel like it's grounding and rooted to use something like that, um, a label for yourself, also okay and accept it. But just as long as you know, and again, leave that little crack open for, you probably will change that and to sort of welcome that and be okay with that. Thank you for clarifying that. That was beautiful. That was great. Thank you. Um, how can we help the listeners, right? Or myself, anyone out there, uh, who's going to come across this, what are some things that we can do to increase our optimism and help ourselves just, you know, see things from that more positive light? Or when we go down the negative rabbit hole, ways that we can pick ourselves back up again? Yeah. Um, well, I love that question because it's literally the reason why I created this thing that's behind me right now, which is the uh, Optimism Deck of Cards. There's 52 different science-based uh, prompts and suggestions that actually work to increase your optimism. So this is my favorite question. And for me, like what I'm super passionate about and um, I feel sort of humbled to be sort of known for is that I'm really, really passionate about tangible, everyday, doable, accessible, inclusive tools that people can work on to increase their mental health and to increase their resiliency and optimism and joy from a science-based perspective. And so I'm really excited about when research comes out and it, it talks about something that you can do that's really based on a tool or a skill that you just already have because you're a human. I'm more excited about that stuff and I focus on that rather than like 
oh, you know, I should prescribe you with a week long silent retreat or some, you know, very expensive um, type of modality or intervention or product. Um, I prefer to, we have so many skills within ourselves as being a human to really help ourselves increase mindset and change beliefs and, um, you know, increase our, our mood um, or even just go through whatever mood that we're in. I just think we don't all know how to use those skills because we're not, we haven't really been given the information and we all deserve it. And then once we know that information, knowing ways that we can sort of sharpen those. And I like to look at optimism as a muscle. And so my passion is sort of helping people work that out. And so for me, um, you know, and I also think it's important that there are certain tools that definitely work better for one person over another. And my sort of tip to people that I work with is when you are experiencing true joy, just anywhere in your life, every day, you probably experience stress. Every day, you probably experience worry. Every day, you probably experience you know, some sort of anger in some way or frustration, it's just normal. But you also experience joy and elation every day and moments of bliss. We just don't, we're not sort of programmed as as humans um, to really focus in on those and to marinate in them the same way that we are when it's sort of an emotion that is not feeling so great. We sort of tend to highlight those. And so one thing that you can really do, and that's a practice that all of us can do, no matter where we're coming from or where we're at in our lives, is when you experience joy, get used to, first of all, saying, I'm experiencing joy. This is what joy feels like. And then asking yourself, what am I doing right now? And actually, what does this joy feel like? What it, And start to use your senses. Um, what is it feeling like in my body? We all know what anxiety feels like in our body. We don't have to really marinate in that to know it. We can tell you right away what it feels like. The sweaty palms or you know, heart rate that's increased, um, sometimes dizziness or whatever it is. But do you actually know what your body feels when you experience joy? For most of us, probably not, unless we've taken this practice and really given to it. And why don't we do that? So mm. First of all, making our joy last a little longer. If we can, making our joy last for 90 seconds. It sounds easy, but it's actually really hard to focus in on that. So the first thing is I'm experiencing joy right now. What am I doing? I'm taking a walk. I've just passed by my neighbor's front yard. These specific flowers are blooming. Um, I feel some ocean breeze on my face from a few blocks away. Wow. Okay. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm taking a walk. So I have this you know, thing called a phone, which oftentimes we know all the benefits of it and the cons of it. But what I like to use my phone for, I go in my notes section and I have something that I literally call a joy list. And if I were just asking myself today, what are some things that bring you joy? It might be hard for me to recall those. But in the moment, if I'm like, oh my God, I'm experiencing joy right now. My task is to know that, to write down what I'm doing very simply in a list format so I'm taking a walk in nature. I'm actually being specific. I'm passing this neighbor's house on this street. Um, and then I put my phone away. And now I have this list of like 60, 70 things throughout moments that I know bring me joy. And so the reason that this is good is number one, you're recognizing it. And then after there's another step to it, of course, which we talked about, which is what does this joy feel like? And when you ask yourself these questions, you're automatically putting your brain through this exercise where it's focusing on one thing, which is the joy. 
and you're making it focus a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and you will get to 90 seconds if you ask yourself these questions and if you use all your senses. And your brain will then get more used to without you having to do intentionally picking out other moments that feel that same joy. And then secondly, you have this whole list now so that when you really need to experience joy, when you're not naturally experiencing it, but let's say you have a minute or two, I'm really big on this idea of micro moments throughout your day. And I'm very not into this idea of pressurizing ourselves to have these like long drawn out, very, very big rituals of self-care because most of us, I'm a mom, I own a business, I have two small kids, you know, all the things. I don't have time to do all those things, but I do have time to have a collection of one minute at a time, 30 seconds at a time through my day of these micro moments where I'm like, hey, I have two minutes before this podcast recording. I'm going to go to my joy list and see if there's anything I can do on there that takes two minutes that will bring me joy or, hey, I'm having a tough time. I don't know how to solve this yet. But I do think that maybe if I distract myself with an activity that's authentic and brings me joy, and I do it in this moment, what we know about the brain is when we're experiencing something like joy, our prefrontal cortex starts firing and the executive function starts going and we're able to come up with solutions to problems that we probably couldn't do if we were sitting in them. So having a joy list sounds kind of, you know, basic, but it's not. It's actually a huge you know, tool that I like to teach people that is so empowering and really works on self-mastery as well. Because now you have this whole list of things that specifically brings you joy and that you can use anytime. That is amazing. It does sound so simple, but it's really those little simple steps because I love that. Not only you're experiencing it, but then you're bringing your awareness to the fact that you're experiencing it. And I'm writing that list down, I think is brilliant, right? Because I could have had three moments of joy already today, but I don't remember exactly what those were. Right. You don't because as you, and you're not alone. It's a very evolutionary thing. We don't really focus on things that it's that whole idea of why fix something that's not broken. Mm. Um, Whereas actually what we know about mental health and all the research about the brain, we really do need to be focusing on these things. I'm not glassing them over. And it is something that's going to take work for all of us because it's not natural to us. Yeah. And then, so so I just want to peel this back even like one more layer, because I think what you just said can be hugely helpful to people. I am going to start doing that. Um, But the first thing I thought about what, what, what happens if you're not mindful in those, in those moments, right? What happens if someone's listening to this right now and they're like, I, my mind's going a thousand miles an hour. I'm not going to be able to stop and, and think about that and bring my awareness to it. So what are, I guess, some, some tools or ideas that you think can help people in terms of being more mindful so that they can have these moments? Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I'm actually someone who I feel my mind works at a million you know, miles per minute and my brain is constantly thinking. I'm just one of those people that I have tons of thoughts that are happening all the time. And I kind of like to look at it like I was really overwhelmed by the idea even 12, 13 years ago when I started studying optimism and looking into, you know, ideas that were coming up at that time in the mainstream, like mindfulness. And um, of course, meditation has been around for ever, especially as someone that is of Indian background, but it was always something that intimidated me. And I, I actually felt was too, the way that it was like described so early on too, I almost feel like the people that it would help the most people like me who had tons of thoughts and probably a little more prone to anxiety. Um, 
are the ones that we would probably shy away from something like that because I like to look at it like I have this really big bag and the bag is full to the brim. And like our natural reaction with that is, oh, I need a new bag. My bag's too full. Um, you know, like my my son, he had a really small backpack and he's in preschool and he's going to kindergarten next year. And the teachers were like, you need to buy him a new backpack. His backpack's full to the brim. So we buy him a new backpack. And it's so funny. Like now he has this huge backpack and he just starts before he leaves for school, he starts putting more stuff in his backpack because there's space. So I think of that the same way. Like I have this bag, it's full. And now I have a bigger bag. Try to think your mind, make it blank. When my mind's blank and sort of, you know, there's nothing there, a blank canvas, what do I do? I just think more. I put more thoughts into it. And so that idea of sort of making your mind blank doesn't work for me. What works for me is different modalities of mindfulness and, and meditation that do the same thing, but maybe they're, um, I call them sort of directed, attentional um, mindfulness activities. And so I will make myself or have a client think about one thing, um, you know, and I will direct them through it. So they are not having their mind blank at all. I am actually intentionally having them focus on one thing, just like that joyful moment you're focusing, you have a task. So someone like me that has tons of thoughts, that's the kind of mindfulness that works for me. And I think starting with um, really, really simple exercises and, and figuring out how to bring mindfulness into things that you do every day. For example, the way I started was in my shower and it was washing my face. And so that's something I do every day. I wash my face and I make it a mindful activity. And even if I started with 10 seconds and then I increased to 20 seconds and 30 seconds. And while I wash my face, I'm asking myself and sometimes being out loud is a lot easier. What does my face wash actually feel like against my cheeks right now? And now that I'm rubbing over here, what does it smell like? Um, what does the texture feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like against me? You know, I'm, I'm asking myself these questions that are really, really directive and specific and are related to the senses. And before I know it, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, 90 seconds goes by and you've practiced a mindful activity without really knowing that you have. And the same thing goes for when I am eating a meal. Every meal that I eat, I take a moment, even if I'm with people, and I just say, I'm going to devote 20 seconds of this bite to a mindful moment. And I'll do it with someone if I'm having lunch with them and they're happy to do it too. Listen, I live in LA <laughs> or I do it alone. And so I'm taking a bite of food and I ask myself just very specific questions that turn on my senses. That's a mindful moment. What does this taste like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? Um, and so if you do these things, your brain is such a powerful organ that lack of a better way of describing it is really intelligent. And so it learns fast. And once you start doing these intentional, very small, easy, everyone can do these little mindful activities, your brain is much more likely to be able to start practicing mindfulness in the wild without you really intentionally having to do so. This is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that because my mind in mindfulness always goes towards meditation. That's it. Like that and you've just helped open a new pathway for me, a new idea about mindfulness. And I think it's just so important to share these different tools that work. And a lot of times on the podcast with other guests, we've talked about meditation. Yeah. And you just brought a whole new thing. And it reminds me, um, something I was doing for a little while and I stopped. Jay Shetty said in the morning when he would brush his teeth to uh, do an exercise of mindfulness, he would just be very mindful and aware of each tooth that mm -hmm. he brushed and as he went yeah. around. And it was great. When I was doing that, it was 
it's the exact same thing. And it's such a great way because meditation doesn't work for everybody. People, there's like a barrier right between people. Even me in the beginning, it took me months once I even heard about meditation for it to be something that I felt comfortable doing, that I feel like I understood it enough where I could actually practice it. Um, right. And the examples you just gave are just very daily, everyday things that we can do that can help us practice mindfulness, which I think is just so great. Those are the ones that work for me. And yeah, yeah, you have to work up to what your practice is. But these, I, I'm passionate about everyone starting with things that across the board, most everyone can do. And the way to start with those is doing something that's tangible. And so setting a timer, um, doing something that is an activity that you can repeat every day. We all, you know, most of us will wash our faces every day. Most of us will have some type of meal every day where you're having a bite of something that you can do that with. And so it, it really washing our hands. You could do it with washing hands. Um, hopefully all of us are washing our hands every day, multiple times a day. But so you choose an activity that you already do every day. That's easy. You, you know, it doesn't matter if you're going to be practicing mindfulness or not, you're going to be doing that activity. And then you habit build, you stack and you put that mindful little tiny activity and you start small and increase the time onto that. And then you're much more likely to do it. I love that. Thank you again for sharing that. I think that's going to help myself, a lot of people listening. And then, so I want to ask you about you. Mm -hmm. How did you get here? How did you start to become a doctor in happiness and optimism? Like, you know what I mean? I, I just think a lot of people probably listening. It's a very interesting aspect in psychology. And uh, one that I am a big fan of. The fact that when we discovered you and then we reached out to you to do the podcast, it was me and my wife. Uh, she actually does a lot of the outreach. She's the one who finds a lot of the people. We're very connected. She gets it. It's very uh, simple for us to stay aligned and have people on the on the podcast that we know will align with the message of Spread Love Movement. And literally before I hopped on, she's like, this is going to be such a good one. She's so great. She was like stoked. And then it, it is, it's just a very interesting aspect. You know, literally a doctor of happiness and optimism. I know you specialize in those things. And then just to go back to the original question, I want to know more about you, right? How did you, how did that come up with you or the things you experienced earlier, earlier in life? How did you get on and stay on this path? So definitely did not get here in any sort of linear fashion. Like yes. I see a lot of people and I really want to put that out there. It was a very organic path that took a lot of turns. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was not even a psych undergrad major. Um, I went to UCLA and my first job uh, really towards the end of college was working at a punk music record label um, out here in LA, which was amazing. It was the best time of my life. Um, just going to lots of concerts and helping out with A&R, this really cool punk label that basically was the home of most every form of punk music that probably people listen to. But um, it was really fun and amazing. And then I very quickly um, forayed into my first ever real job out of college, which was many people cannot believe it, but I was an investment banker and I worked in capital markets. Um, I lasted a little over a year. And then um, to make a very long story short, I took a brief stint that was the most um, sort of out of nowhere. I'm not a big risk taker. I don't really do that many things on impulse in a big way, but I decided to fly to Japan 
I quit my job and I spent about a month and a half in Japan. Um, I bought a one-way ticket. I, I honestly, I don't know what I was thinking, but it, my parents were freaked out. They were literally like, when is your return? What do you mean you're quitting your job and you're flying to Japan? And then obviously now after the fact, I overhear them telling a bunch of people that was the best thing she ever did. Um, I probably will never do something like that again, but I'm glad that I did it. And it was sort of my, I don't know, it was kind of a cliche. I felt like I just needed, I graduated early from undergrad. And so I was working pretty early on. Um, most of my friends were sort of still in college. I had found myself in a job that I wasn't passionate about and, um, kind of lonely. And I just needed to go and experience this other culture and, um, anyway, long story short, I came back and I found myself in working for a company in the public health space. And um, I was really passionate about it, um, of what we were working on, but things in public health and products, especially in public health, take a really long time to go through the FDA. And they basically knew I had some um, experience in in the banking world and deal-making and M&A. So I sort of just got lumped into their M&A team which was really interesting. And there's a lot of psychology behind deal-making and I was passionate about certain aspects of it, but it wasn't necessarily doing it for me. And I had the most amazing boss at the time who was such a great mentor. And I think that's been the theme, if I could think of throughout my whole sort of path is I always had really good, I was lucky and always had really good mentorship. And we were at this management um, sort of off-site meeting. The company was based in the UK and we were in this management meeting in this little town called Calais in France. And he had brought an organizational psychologist like that works with leadership out. And he basically pulled me aside on like sort of the shuttle back to our hotel. And he said, I just want to let you know, I really saw like you were really turned on um, by the psychology stuff. And I see that when you're in the meetings for deal-making, like it's always about the people and the psychology. Have you ever thought of that? And I think he was thinking more in terms of like business psychology. And I was like, you know what? I am really interested. I've always been interested in humans, um, in behavior, but I never really, the idea of psychology scared me because I was the kid that when the Titanic came out, the movie came out, I did not go to school for a full week because I was depressed in bed and crying and I just, it was hard for me to separate my own feelings from other people's. And I just thought I'd make the worst therapist of what I thought a therapist was. I, I think I had too much empathy in the way that it would like derail me. And so with his blessing, I didn't even give two weeks notice. I quit and I flew back to LA and I knocked on every single door at UCLA Neuropsychiatric, my alma mater. And I just begged people to let me intern for free or volunteer for them while I was going to take some prereqs um, at a community at SMC community college because I had no psych classes um, to apply to grad school. And so I ended up two people um, took a chance on me. One was a research based um, sort of volunteership for the summer and one was a clinical one. So I was working clinically with um, severely diagnosed OCD patients, which was mind-blowing and eye-opening. And then I was doing, working on a research study at UCLA for the schizophrenic population. And I definitely found my passion in the clinical piece of it. And so that sort of summer and year went by really fast. And then I applied to grad school and it was, it all just felt very right. And I ended up getting my master's and then my doctorate. And it was in that program um, I really gravitated towards this idea of visualization. And so 
sensory-based visual imagery kind of became my expertise. And through that, I found was a perfect modality and sort of intervention to increase people's positive future-directed thinking or optimism. And so it all sort of just found me um, and I found it. And I think selfishly, I'm like, if I have to do this for this many years, going through a doctorate is no joke and writing a dissertation or doing a dissertation project. And then like the life long of like, I'm going to be a psychologist and sort of like, I'm going to have to find my own way to practice to make selfishly this work for me. And I didn't really see fit as I was reading and I'm kind of a brain nerd, um, self-proclaimed. I love the brain. And I was starting to learn so much about it and doing extra work around it and, and learning that it is this anticipatory organ. The brain is always thinking in future tense. Why is all of the interventions that I've been learning to do with people in therapy so past-driven? And so I kind of became obsessed with being people sort of like, then what? Okay, this isn't working for you. You know where the behavior came from. That I understand it. It's really important. But like what I want to work on with you is now what? Like let's formulate something that does work. And so all of that, long story short, I was passionate about this idea of optimism and seeing if we could measure it and really into Martin Seligman and his learned optimism. Um, he's sort of the founding father of positive psychology and taking it a step further. And so throughout you know, the years, while I did my practicum and internship, for those of you that don't know, it's thousands and thousands of hours of clinical work under supervision. Um, I did a double postdoc fellowship at UCLA and Cedars out here in LA. And again, I had amazing mentorship and, um, you know, supervision and supervisors that were very eager and open to allowing me to try these new modalities on the population that I was working with that maybe weren't being done before. And so it gave me the confidence and sort of the innovation to kind of make my practice be my practice. And over time, I sort of left the clinical world and I was seeing clients and working sort of on my own with my own sort of newly designed type of therapy that um, I was sort of just calling self-worth work and not therapy. And I was really looking into people's optimism factors and seeing if I could find ways to measure it and then, you know, have a scale and work on increasing it and really focusing on things like their strengths rather than things that weren't working out. Um, and one of my clients was like, so basically you just spent 20 minutes of my session describing to me what we're going to do and how it's different than traditional therapy. And you're basically just like a doctor of optimism. And I was like, huh. And he started calling me the optimism doctor. And then other clients started sort of just calling me that. And I was like, if I just told you I was an optimism doctor, could I have just like foregone that 30 minutes? I am not concise, as you can tell. Um, it's one of my flaws. But um, could I have just, you know, foregone that and you'd know what we were doing? And they said, yeah. So it sort of just stuck. And then I decided, hey, this doesn't exist and I'm doing it and it should exist. And so I trademarked it and I became the optimism doctor. It was very organic. So brilliant. You just created your own path. That's like, that's all I, like the main thing I took from there is that you really, and I love it. You, you did stuff in punk rock as, uh, as an investment banker, you know what you like, you tried different things yes. and then you found out what really resonated with you. And then you made that thing that resonated with you, your own, and you took your own path. Yes. And so I feel like there's nothing more 
like modeling optimism or there's nothing more optimistic than that or hopeful than that. And I try to, whenever I'm speaking to younger people, I'm always like just sharing that. Like if you're doing something that you're passionate about and you actually feel like you're making a difference in this world while doing it and it doesn't exist, like it does exist because you do it and you have to take all the steps to really officially make it exist because it's worth it. There's something... I want to ask you too. So I saw one of the videos that you had posted and it was talking about how acts of kindness Mm -hmm. uh, can be very effective tool in combating depression. Mm -hmm. And I would just love to hear more about your thoughts on that, your perspective on that, why you think that, because I believe in that as well, but I'd love to hear it more from a doctor. And then I just think people out there who are depressed and it's like, who wants to be there? When I've been depressed, I don't want to be there. All I want is for some sort of a incremental step towards a more positive yeah. outlook on that situation. Um, so yeah, if you can just share kind of your thought process, your outlook on that, because literally anyone listening right now who's depressed can use this or anyone who deals with depression in their life. Um, like one, it's helping them. And then two, their acts of kindness. You're just putting out yeah. good energy into the world. So just cyclical, a beautiful, beautiful experience, I think. Yes. Um, so that is something that has been researched for a while. And there's a lot of evidence to support that just doing something kind for someone else is not just helpful for the other person, the recipient, but it's also helpful for the person doing it. But what I was interested in, I think maybe the the video that you might be talking about, sometimes I take studies that come out and I sort of break them down um, in a sort of simple video format, because again, the root of that is I just feel that every person has the right to mental health knowledge and how our brains work for us. And there's a lot of studies that come out that I think just people that aren't in the field are never going to read, or they don't really people think they're not going to get it. And I think people are going to get it. So um, one of the studies that just came out, it was actually early this year um, in January. um, I think it was out of Ohio State, if I'm not mistaken. And just in case I'm wrong on that, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it was. And they did this study and they found, which is not surprising, but people that are suffering from symptoms of depression and anxiety, may one of the things that may actually help them to heal in a real way is by doing good deeds for other people. And I think the piece there that is a little different that we don't think about, which that just sounds like, sure, of course that would be the case. I think that the reason there that is so important is that if you know someone that is suffering with anxiety or depression or low mood or whatever it is, I think our normal sort of stance with that is to not burden them. And to not ask them for anything because they have their load is too much. But actually, what this study made me feel and what I took from it was something that's even kind that we could do for someone else that's going through something. And I love these domino effects is that we could ask someone that is going through something for themselves, which is, you know, could be anxiety or depression or whatever that is for help for something that we might need. And not only is that helpful for us, but you're actually in turn helping them because. Part of it is that they are deflecting from their own sort of specific needs. And a lot of times when you are depressed, you sort of can go through this um, spotlight view of like only seeing inward and you're not able to sort of bring yourself out and see sort of the bigger picture or um, experience, you know, um, sort of being a part of something bigger. And sometimes like just doing something kind for someone else 
can do that for you. And it can take you out of sort of this very self-related, um, um, self-inflicted sort of like place of mind. And then also it is natural for our brain to have these, you know, um, hormones that are released when we do something kind for someone else. And we see kindness actually right in front of us that we were a part of, it actually releases hormones that make us happy. And so it is a great way. I think what I took from it, not just that doing kind, um, acts that you should, we should all be doing. Um, but actually if you know someone suffering, don't think that, Oh, you know, I need a ride from the airport or, um, you know, I need, I need help with, I don't know, picking up a coffee or whatever it is, my dry cleaning, or, um, I have, I need advice on something and they're really good at editing books. Um, whatever it is, like, don't be afraid to ask someone that is going through their own struggle for some kind of help that you would have asked anyway. Don't, don't disregard them because actually that just might be the thing that they need and the tool that they need. And this study really shows that, and it can actually be a great way to promote connection and what people need in that moment in depression or anxiety is to come out of themselves and to then connect with another human being and to build a sense of self-mastery. It's just that completely just changed my whole perception of that because right when I'm around or near someone who's depressed, there is, there's like this idea of like, I don't want to burden them. I don't want to bother them and to give them, to present them with an opportunity where they can experience love and or kindness through their action, how much that must lift them up in that moment. And of course, yes. And to be mindful of what that ask is, but I almost feel like one of the best ways you can help a friend. um, I think that it's a, it's a misconception that we all feel when someone is sharing with us and being vulnerable, whether it is that they are going through depression or not, or just they're going through a sad moment. We are not always diagnosable with these things. Um, I think that it is a misconception that that person or your friend is looking for you to solve something. They're usually just looking for you to listen. And to follow that up with, like, sometimes it makes me feel after reading through this study, it, it might be sort of a nice, helpful way to help a friend that is going through something to actually come up with a very small task that you need help on, even if you didn't need help, like to make it up, mm. but really small, something that's doable, tangible, that they can do that is more helpful than trying to figure out solving their situation, because that's not what they're asking for. You know, so it's either listening or some type of tool or skill. And people ask me all the time, what can I do for someone? I feel so helpless. You can maybe think like, what if I ask them to run a quick errand for me? Or what mm-hmm. if I ask them to listen to something, um, a short thing? I wouldn't bog them down with, you know, your own sort of very heavy emotional, um, emotional situation. We don't want to do that. But I think we can all kind of be intelligent about what that might be. And just the idea here is not to disregard them and that they may actually need you to ask them for something, for help. There was like a post that went around that I feel like went everywhere. And it was essentially somebody being like, you know, when they're with somebody who's like down or, you know, in a bad mood or struggling uh, and they want to get something off their chest, you ask them like me right now, do you need me to be a soundboard and just sit here and listen to you? Or do you need like advice and you're trying to get somewhere else? And I think in just asking those questions, you know, exactly now there's just such transparency there. And then you know exactly what that person actually needs in the moment, because 
we can guess and assume what they need and then we can just try and it's not at all what they needed but just i think simply asking them so that you yourself that person you're there trying to help them you can actually help them in the best way possible yes and i want to ask you too where how can people access you what are some services that you offer if someone's listening right now and it's like i need more deepika in my life right now so that i can access optimism more so i can find more joy and happiness in my everyday life so please share how people can contact you if it's like if you do just like one-on-ones if you do group whatever that may look like so i am um someone that is very uh active on my dms i love when people reach out to me on social media um it is me it's probably why my um, account is not very uh, there is nothing intentional and probably strategic about it. It's probably why Instagram, the algorithm hates me, but it's me and I post when I can and I'm, I, it's very authentic. And I'm also so one of the, fa- my favorite things about having an Instagram account is getting questions from people about optimism and about work. And I am always um, answering them. I love, I love that the personal connection um, and how it's sort of brought me to all different kinds of people. So I am on Instagram at Dr. Deepika Chopra. Um, literally that question is why I created the deck of cards. You can get all my tips and tricks and tools in this deck of cards. Um, it's called Things Are Looking Up. You can get them online at thingsarelookingup.co. Um, they're also available in lots of different stores. Um, and so I think that's a really great way to start. It actually came about because one of the things I was super passionate about and why I sort of stepped away from the clinical um, sort of world is because I was really passionate about this idea of making sort of treatment and self-growth more accessible and inclusive. And I felt like it, it, it is hard to find someone to work with and it's hard to find someone. There's so many different modalities and I just wasn't seeing that my field was so antiquated, I couldn't see people, quote unquote, in a different state, for example. Um, This is pre-pandemic, under the license and under, you know, clinical, really officially clinically practicing. And so I decided to do away with all that and sort of go off on my own and open these doors. And then all of a sudden, I realized that I had nine, 10 month wait list because it was just me and people were really resonating with this idea and this new form of therapy. And it was getting expensive, of course, um, because it was just me. And I realized this is exactly the opposite of why I want to do what I do. And so how can I work with more people without one-on-one working with more people? And that's why I created the deck of cards. Um, I do a lot more sort of macro level stuff now. I run workshops and um, partner with companies, um, large companies for their mental health sort of outward facing projects and campaigns. Um, I do a lot of media work. I'm not, I don't, I don't have a large private practice anymore. I still do see a few people, like a handful, um, very small. I can't wait to get back to that at some point. But for now, um, you know, you, you could always try, reach out, and sometimes there's an opening. Um, but the card deck is there, and the kids' version of the deck is coming out in a couple months. And there is a book coming out pretty soon too. So there are all different kinds of things. And the digital version of the whole deck is also being released. So it'll be even more inclusive and accessible um, for people. So 
that is my passion. That's what I want to do. I want to talk to you. Please reach out, find out more, sign up for the newsletter so you can be the first to hear of what the new offers are and where I'm speaking. I do a lot of speaking and a lot of the speaking engagements are all over the world, actually. And a lot of them are open for anyone. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being intentional with your work in making it more accessible for people. That's so special. And that really takes someone caring, you know what I mean? And being very deliberate in their actions so that they can make it more accessible for people and they can create a price point for people that more, it, it just allows more people to access your knowledge and information so they can create more optimism and more joy in their life. It's amazing. Then in turn creates more optimism and joy for the whole world. So exactly. it is truly, it is a full circle. It is exactly. And then, so I'm going to ask you the question I ask every single guest. Uh, so my goal in life mission of spread love movement, this podcast myself is to help shift the collective consciousness of the planet to be one that is more loving and kind, peaceful, empathetic, vulnerable, optimistic, joy-filled, uh, essentially a consciousness that is more one that understands us and the love for each other and the joy and happiness and positivity that exists. So how do you feel like every single day you are helping contribute to this sort of a shift in consciousness? Mm, wow. That is such a good question. Um, for some reason, uh, I, what came up for me while you were saying that, and I'll just go with that, yeah. is I am a very, very true believer in teaching people and myself, um, first and foremost, the idea of self-compassion. And I always tell my clients and people that there is no time wasted in getting to know yourself. And the first and foremost tool and skill that you should learn and that you should move with whenever you are in any emotional state, the first thing that you always do is practice your self-compassion tool. And I truly believe, believe that when you are able to practice self-compassion with yourself, whatever emotion you're feeling, whatever setback you're going through, the first and foremost thing, the first line of defense is self-compassion. And when you can do that, you are able to be much more compassionate with other humans and the planet and everything else in this world. You're able to experience awe and being sort of knowing that you are a small part of something much bigger. And it then drives you to be able to be intentional and put focus and energy into helping and being a part of the greater good um, for lack of sort of a cliche, but it starts with self-compassion. It really does. And it sounds again, like another simple thing. All these things are simple, but actually they're very difficult and they take um, practice. They take real practice and they're only simple once you practice them and you develop that skill. And so self-compassion, it is really worth, if there's one thing you can take from this, the one skill to work on and to learn more of is how to practice self-compassion. Amazing. Thank you for that again. You've been incredible. This has helped me and taught me a lot already. Thank you so much for dedicating your life to the betterment of this world. Thank you so much. You too. For giving, for giving people like me a platform to spread this and for highlighting work like this. Of course. Oh, thank you. And like, really, I'm, I'm grateful for people that you exist because without you, this doesn't exist in itself anyway. So just so much love and gratitude and appreciation for you and the beautiful work that you're doing. You. Um, yes. And of course, thank you for taking some time so we could come. You can lift in my spirits, the people who are listening. Um, so just thank you again. I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Can't yes. wait to connect more. Yes, me too. And everybody out there right now, thank you so much for being here and being present and taking the time uh, to sit in on this conversation. I hope it helped. We hope it helped. Please reach out to her in any way that you want. I love that. that you're like, I respond to my DMs. So anybody right now who is listening to this, who wants to tap in more, please reach out, DM her and create more optimism and more positivity, joy and happiness in your life. It's like what we're all striving to do. So love that you're an advocate of that. And everybody, thank you so much again for being here. We have so much love for you and I cannot wait to see you next week. Thank you so much. Have so much love for you. Bye everybody. We'll see you next week. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please like, follow, share, subscribe, whatever you can do to help share this with the world. We put a lot of energy, effort, and time into creating this beautiful podcast with these incredible guests to help bring more awareness to the love that exists all around us. So if you can help spread some love, we'd really appreciate it. Love you.